Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today, I have the great pleasure of uh, interviewing for this podcast, Dr. Nuria Agusti, who's currently in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology and Reproductive Medicine at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. The topic of this uh, discussion is going to be the lead article uh, for this month is titled Sentinel Lymph Node Detection in Early Stage Ovarian Cancer, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analyses. Nuria, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for accepting the invitation to speak with us about your article. Yeah, hello, everybody. Well, first of all, um, thank you to you, Dr. Romerez. I want to express my gratitude to you because, of course, you have been a mentor to me. And I am here now learning so much at MD Anderson. And this is because of the first experience I had while I was a resident and rotating with you. So thank you so much for everything you have thought to me. Of course, my God, my pleasure. You have been incredibly uh, successful uh, and all to your credit and uh, and the intensive amount of work that you have put into your, the growth of your academic career. So uh, thank you uh, for, for those words as well. But Nuria, we want to obviously get to, to the topic of sentinel lymph nodes in early stage ovarian cancer. And I wanted to first ask you if you can discuss uh, why you thought this was an important question to evaluate at this point. Yeah, thank you so much for the question. Well, so I think that the importance of evaluating the feasibility and effectiveness of sentinel lymph node in ovarian cancer staging became evident when considering that the standard surgical management for early stage epithelial ovarian cancer still includes systematic pelvic and parotid lymphadenectomy. Unfortunately, as many of us are aware, this procedure is related to post-operative complications, morbidity, and has a negative impact on the quality of life of, of the patients. So trying to evaluate the role of sentinel lymph node in ovarian cancer and for us make perfect sense, especially considering its successful application in the evaluation of other gynecological types of tumors and that we have gained experience on this file. However, despite being reasonable exploring the role of sentinel lymph node in ovarian cancer, unlike other gynecological cancers where sentinel lymph node mapping has gained widespread acceptance, ovarian cancer has not seen the same level of global adoption. Until recently, mostly within the past decade, there have been limited studies in this file, often characterized by a small sample size, with most of them including no more than about 30 patients. So these small-scale studies, often also using different techniques, have provided fragmented insights into the feasibility and diagnostic accuracy of this technique. So to address this fragmentation and gain a comprehensive understanding of the current state of sentinel lymph node in ovarian cancer staging, we thought that a systematic review and meta-analysis seemed to be important, given that this approach allows us to not only evaluate the quality and findings of the studies, but also to aggregate the results and increase the statistical power of our analysis. So with uh, all of this being mentioned, the goal of this systematic review was to contribute to the ongoing dialogue in the medical community about whether sentinel lymph node mapping can be valuable addition to staging of early stage ovarian cancer or not. So yeah, I think this question is important to evaluate because it helps to identify areas that require further investigation and standardization, shedding light on the path forward for this technique in clinical practice, whatever is the future we have ahead. 
Yeah. So, and we'll get definitely into some of the questions uh, pertaining to the specifics and the and the rationale for that. Uh, before we get to the uh, to the results, um, can you tell us a little bit about the methodology for the review and uh, what kind of uh, studies did you include? Yeah. Sure. First of all, um, we were we wrote a protocol for the review, specifying carefully defined research question, the search strategy with the source used, and register it on Prospero, as it is recommended. Uh, we think it's very important to perform this systematic review. We also adhere to the Prisma framework. Regarding the eligibility criteria, in our review, we focused on epithelial ovarian cancer patients especially those at a stage figure one and two who had undergone full pelvic and periortic lymphadenectomy as a reference standard for comparison. We also considered different grades and diverse surgical techniques employing various sentinel lymph nodes methods. Importantly, to stay on the topic and maintain the focus on early stage ovarian cancer, we excluded studies involving benign and borderline ovarian tumors. Finally, we also explored um, Histories, videos, reviews, and so on, because they often lack the comprehensive and reliable data required for a systematic um, review, making them not adequate for our research. So now, um, be before going to all of the questions that we have uh, pertaining the the study, uh, tell us the main findings first, um, and what should be the take-home messages from, from this systematic review? Um, first of all, I would like to highlight that substantial heterogeneity was observed in the studies, with a low number of patients being included and limited, um, limited statistical power to detect significant differences between techniques, such as tracer usage or the optimal timing for injection. So that being mentioned, our study showed a detection rate of 93%, with a negative predictive value per patient of 100%. Additionally, results suggested that uterovarian and infundibulopelvic injection using both indocianin green and radiotracer combination could increase sentinel lymph node detection rates. However, it's important to know that further research and the standardization of techniques are necessary before considering widespread adoption. Additionally, it's essential to highlight that results from significant clinical trials such as Sally or Melissa are awaited. And these findings could potentially impact the conclusions drawn um, from our work. So there is a necessity for additional research to clarify these aspects and standardize the best approach to sentinel lymph node mapping in ovarian cancer staging. Very well. And Nuria, you were uh, one of the fellows in the journal. So uh, as you know, in the podcast, we always ask questions from the fellows. Uh, mm -hmm. And this first question is from Guido uh, Valsaki in Argentina. And I think this is a question that many of us actually have. Considering the high detection rate and negative predictive value observed in your study, why do you think the sentinel lymph node technique in ovarian cancer has not evolved as it has done in other gynecologic cancers? Well, first of all, thank you for this question. I know that fellows try to do their best to <laughs> ask difficult questions, so <laughs> I, I will try to do my best. So yeah, specifically, I think that this is a really good question. In fact, so my thoughts are, there's a lot of adaption for sentinel lymph node mapping in ovarian cancer compared to other gynecological cancer can be attributed to several factors. It's not only one cause. Firstly, accessing the ovary is not as straightforward as in other gynecological cancer sites. 
In fact, in the history of sentinel lymph node mapping in gynecology, the initial focus of the technique was on the cervix and vulva because these tumors were visible and easy to access. And I think it was around 2012 that the techniques gained more prominence when they decided to inject into the uterine cervix. So one reason for the slower adoption in ovarian cancer might be that this is not a superficial tumor and needs intraoperative injection in the same surgical site of the tumor is um, located. Additionally, ovarian cancer presents unique challenges due to the complexity of its lymphatic drainage system, making the identification of sentinel lymph nodes more challenging. Approximately 30% of patients with lymph node involvement have metastasis in both aortic and pelvic lymph nodes, and in at least 80% of patients, there is aortic lymph node involvement. So in addition to all of this, there is an absence of a homogeneous and universally accepted standardization for the technique, which is crucial when it comes to sentinel lymph node mapping. Without the standardization, and in a setting in which the incidence of early stage ovarian cancer is relatively low, healthcare professionals may hesitate to adopt and test sentinel lymph node mapping in a, even in, in a research setting. And well, if that weren't enough, <laughs> a significant number of patients receive their definitive diagnosis retrospectively after a single anexectomy without staging. And those patients are highly likely to receive chemotherapy regardless of nodal status. So in these scenarios, alternative methods such as imaging and monitoring for enlarged nodes may become the preferred approach for staging instead of surgery. So in conclusion, while sentinel lymph node mapping has shown good results in this review, its slower adoption can be attributed to its location deep within the body, complex lymphatic drainage patterns, the need for standardization, and the relatively lower incidence of the disease. So overcoming the challenges and conducting further research in this area might enhance the, this technique. Great. Um, this next question comes from uh, Luigi Davitis in Italy. And I think, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a very important question. It's an interesting question in that, for example, when you look at cervical cancer or endometrial cancer, most studies now are reporting pretty much very similar detection rates of sentinel lymph node uh, mapping. But uh, in this study, uh, sentinel lymph node detection rate was 93%, uh, but there was a study with 27% detection rate. In your opinion, what are the reasons that can explain this wide variation? Yes, there that is a, a good point as well, and thank you for the question. First of all, as a reminder uh, of this study, in, in this study, the authors aim to evaluate whether injecting the tracer after the removal of the ovarian tumor in the ovarian ligament stems had different outcomes compared to injecting the tracer before the removal of the tumor. The authors mentioned that one potential explanation for this low detection rate is the alteration of lymphatic drainage patterns following the resection of the ovary. This alteration could make the detection of sentinel lymph node less reliable compared to when the tracer is injected before the mass is removed. However, there are two additional studies, one of the most important ones, and the Sally and the Centoff studies that also performed the injection after the mass resection, and they also have conflicting results. While the Sally study reported a preliminary detection rate of 67%, the Centoff study by LAGO study and reported a detection rate of 100%. So this discrepancy could be related to the exact injection point and the different traces they used among the studies. Additionally, returning to the Levens study and the question, 
I would also like to highlight that I think that it's super important to consider the learning curve associated with the complex with this complex procedure. The authors of this study did not specify how long it took to recruit 11 patients. So it is very important to know that the experience and expertise of surgical teams can vary widely, and it's a well-established fact that surgical techniques often exhibit a learning curve that can significantly impact outcomes. Yeah, this this uh, question actually came from several fellows, uh, one of them Giuseppe Caruso in Italy and Jorge Hegel in Venezuela. And, and I think it alludes to that same point that you were describing. Uh, and they say there is an extremely large heterogeneity in the injection site, the tracer, the doses that are being used. So we cannot draw any conclusions about which is the best approach. So based on your extensive review of the literature, what would you suggest for future prospective trials and protocols? Yeah, thank you very much for the question. Also, it's a really interesting one. And I will try to speed the answer regarding the injection site, the doses used, and the tracer, tracers used. When considering the injection site for sentinel immune mapping, there's a notable level of agreement among the studies we reviewed. In fact, the infundibulopelvic and uterovarian ligaments were the most commonly used injection site employed in about 92% of patients. Regarding the tracer dose, there was also a degree of consistency with volumes typically ranging from 0.2 to 0.5 milliliters and consistent also dosage for uh, ICC and the radio tracer. However, it's important to know that there's more diversity when it comes to the choice of pressure. Various studies have explored up to four different pressure options. Notably, the combination of both endocyanin green and red treasure showed that um, showed the highest detection rate. However, it's important to emphasize that this conclusion primarily relies on the findings of a single study group by Lago and colleagues. So it highlights the need for external validation. So an important point is that one might wonder what is the role of ICG used as a single agent? As we all gynecologists would agree that applying the endocyanin green um, alone would be the most pragmatic and best way to perform this technique as we already do in cervical and uterine cancer. However, the single use in ovarian cancer pre present unique challenges compared to other gynecological cancers. Firstly, as we have previously mentioned, ovarian lymphatic drainage is broad, including the orthocaval and pelvic regions. So this complexity makes using ICG alone more challenging due to its rapid lymphatic migration. And secondly, the injection in the ovarian cancer is performed within the same surgical file in a thin layer of peritoneum instead of a dense tissue as it is in the other gynecological cancers. So it's frequent that leakage, dissemination, and hindering visualization of the real lymphatic drainage, elevating the risk of an empty node package. So, Interestingly, to overcome the challenge of the tracer leaking into the retroperitoneal pelvic spaces during the injection in the surgical file, an Italian group has evaluated the concordance between two theoretically different lymphatic pathways by performing a cervical injection with endocyanin green and uterovarian ligament injection with blue dye in patients with endometrial cancer. And surprisingly, they found that the same pelvic sentinel lymph node in all cases with both tracer suggesting that two injection sites might be equivalent. They suggest that cervical injection could potentially improve then the pelvic sentinel lymph node um, detection rates. And just to know, currently there is an ongoing multicentric study in Spain 
that they are trying to assess the diagnostic accuracy of the technique, and they also allow the cervical injection site to detect, to hire the detection of the pelvical um, file. Excellent. So this, this question kind of follows along with that. Uh, this is from Guido Valsaki, and, um, and he's asking more about the timing, when to inject. And, and I think you alluded a little bit to that before, but do you inject before you remove the mask? Do you inject before getting into the retroperitoneal space? Do you inject after you remove the mask, presumably after you have a frozen section? When is the best time? Yeah. I think that ideally, ideally, the best time would be to inject it after the mass removal and with a single agent. Unfortunately, it the I mean the ideal setting and does not align with our results, but probably because we have like heterogeneous um, styles included and we don't have enough power. But regarding the best time to inject it, characteristics of the tracers, we have to know that they are also different and they, they can lead us the right answer. On one hand, the radio tracer, um, it has a huge molecular site and it remains trapped in the lymph nodes for a long period of time. And ideally, it can be injected before the next ectomy. However, the small size of endocyanin green um, molecule causes like rapid lymphatic migration and makes it difficult to accurately identify the first node after several minutes have passed. Therefore, um, it depends also um, on the tracer, and it's infrequent to inject the ICC tracer once we have the malignant confirmation, and maybe the radio tracer it would be ideal to inject it before the anexectomy has been performed. And as a curiosity, and currently I am also that in hospital clinical personal Melissa trial is over. They are um, undergoing a pilot study using an hybrid tracer in which both the ICG molecule and radio tracer are linked to the nanocolloidal albumin. So this approach aims to enhance the best um, characteristic of both tracers and avoid the rapid dissemination of ICG while still allowing the direct um, visualization. And however, uh, we avoid the widespread, however, it's difficult to apply it to the, over the world and it's widespread use in our hospital might be difficult. Yeah. So this question comes from Matt Wager in uh, Wisconsin, and um, he's asking more about the practicality. And, and I think, you know, you talked about when to inject, um, but there are some who advocate injecting before the agnexal removal. And his question is, is more so, well, if we don't know that the agnexal mass is going to be cancer, then wouldn't we be wasting a lot of time and resources doing the sentinel lymph node mapping before the mass is removed? Yeah, this is also a very good question. And um, well, one I, for me, one red flag of injecting before the nexectomy is that maybe we are um, causing iatrogenicity. For example, um, if some patient doesn't at, at the frozen section result they turn to have a benign or borderline ovarian tumor. So you would have um, performed the injection unnecessarily. So I think that, again, the ideal setting, the ideal scenario would be to inject it after the anexectomy. However, um, it's also important to highlight that, for example, for the radio tracer, um, if we exclude a um, patient with apparent contraindications, such as prior allergies to a radio tracer, several renal dis um, dysfunction, thyroid dysfunction, it should be considered a safe tracer. And other than that, adverse reaction to this tracer are extremely rare. So 
it should not experience significant consequences. For the ICG, I think that the best moment to inject it is after the nexectomy, so we wouldn't encounter this problem. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> this next question is from Jorge Hegel in, um, in Venezuela. And, you know, I think this happens also with cervix cancer, with endometrial cancer, that we inject and we're waiting and we're waiting to see when the lymph node will be detected. Now, his question is, do you think that there is an ideal waiting time between injection and detection that to give us a clue as to when we should perhaps re-inject? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that there is actually different waiting times, ideal waiting times. Regarding the ideal waiting time between injection and and the detection of the sentinel lymph node, it largely depends on the type of dye or trust that you use. For a ready tracer, approximately 15 minutes are typically needed to allow for proper tracer drainage and localization. In contrast, for endocyanin green, the detection is more, almost immediate. And as is commonly observed in other cancer sites, the ICC tracer rapidly flows its lymphatic pathway and allowing you, you allow it to, to check it in a real-time tracking and visualization. So there's no needed like waiting five minutes or, or something similar. You can immediately follow the, the tracer. And lastly, for blue dye, an interval of at least 10 minutes is also recommended. Okay. Um, this question comes from Jessica Mauro in Italy. And this is more on management of what you find in the sentinel lymph nodes. Um, she asked, assuming that the sentinel lymph node may become the standard of care for early stage ovarian cancer, how should we manage isolated tumor cells or micrometastases in this setting? Yeah, this is indeed an important question that please, I also want to know the answer. <laughs> But unfortunately, we still lack definitive answers regarding the role of low-volume metastasis. Um, ongoing trials like cellular Melissa, which incorporate ultra-staging analysis in their protocols, might provide insights as we await data on the percentage of IDC or micrometastasis in these ongoing trials. In terms of interpreting this question, personally, one potential role that IDC or micrometastasis could fulfill is assisting us in identifying maybe a subgroup of patients who may not respond well and are at a highest risk of relapse. This could potentially shed light on the outcomes observed in some patients, but further research is clearly needed in this fight. And this question comes from Matt Wager again. Um, he's interested about ultra-staging. He says several included studies did not specify the use of ultra-staging for sentinel lymph node assessment in ovarian cancer. Um, how could this have impacted the results? Is an ultra-staging protocol necessary in ovarian sentinel lymph node mapping? Yes. As we have learned from other gynecological cancers, the impact of not using ultra-staging is that we have likely missed detecting metastasis. This omission could significantly affect the results, particularly with respect to the percentage of final lymph node involvement. It is well established that in other cancers, up to 10 to 15 of patients can be upstaged due to ultra-staging. So I think that similar effect may be expected in the ovarian cancer, and especially in high-grade serous histology, where a higher incidence of metastasis is typically observed. However, ultra-staging would likely have no um, impact on the false negative rates. Regarding whether it is necessary, 
I truly believe that if a hospital has the necessary resources, implementing a ultra-staging protocol should be strongly considered. In the current era, studying and implementing ultra-staging of sentinel limb nodes, I think it's crucial for gaining a deeper understanding of these aspects and improving diagnostic accuracy. Great. Uh, Luigi Davitis is interested in the studies, and, and you have alluded to some of them actually already. And he's saying, you mentioned there's three ongoing studies, the MELISSA trial, the CELI trial, and the TRSGOSLN00541. Can you comment on what these are? Yeah, sure. And the MELISSA trial and has been conducted at the Hospital Clinico Barcelona and has completed um, the requirement. I am, in fact, the, the principal investigator of the study, and its objective was to assess the detection of the sentinel lymph node in epithelial early stage ovarian cancer using two tracers, ICG and radio tracer. The injection point was both uterovarian and infundibular pelvic ligament. For the study trial, it is a huge multicentric prospective study in Italy, aiming to enroll over 150 patients. And its goal is to evaluate the diagnostic accuracy of that technique when using only ICG as a single agent. Injection um, occurs after an exectomy is performed, following malignant confirmation. And also into the injection is performed into the ovarian and infundibular pelvic ligaments. And fi finally, TREGO is a Turkish study, and its objective is to assess the feasibility and accuracy of lymph node evaluation using sentinel lymph node detection technique in 200 patients. This evaluation involves comparing the effectiveness or tracer injection techniques, whether injected before or after the nexectomy, and comparing also on the cyan and green or blue dye trace, tracers and efficacy. Excellent. Now, uh, Jessica Mauro asked about really large tumors, uh, particularly tumors that prevent you really great access to the infundibular pelvic uh, ligaments, um, the the utero ovarian ligament before you actually remove it. Any tips that you can give regarding these tumors? Yeah, I think that this is an interesting question because it reflects a real world scenario. Many early stage ovarian tumors can be super large, as we all know, making it difficult to access to both um, ovarian ligaments. However, even in such challenging setting to perform an exectomy, we need to cut the infundibular pelvic ligament. We need to find it. So is there where tracer injection should be performed? However, it's true that there are concerns to consider in these situations. As mentioned earlier, while dissecting a large another tumor to the peritoneum, lymphatic pathways can be disrupted, can, can, they can be cut. So this disruption might hinder our ability to locate the sentinel lymph node and potentially lead to tracer leakage. So surgeons should make every effort to minimize any disruptions um, to these pathways, lymphatic pathways. But well, in summary, when dealing with large volume tumors in sentinel lymph node mapping, there are inherent challenges. So a cautious and methodological approach is super essential. So now, Nuria, um, this uh, uh, question comes from Giuseppe uh, Cucinella in Italy. Uh, interesting question. He says, all histologic tumor types were included do you see that there may be any difference in sentinel lymph node detection between different uh, histotypes? Yeah. Thank you, Giuseppe, for the question. Um, unfortunately, we did not evaluate this, this aspect in our study. 
We chose to include all histologic tumors types to ensure a larger sample size. And because our primary objective was to assess the detection rate, we did not find it compelling enough to justify exclusion based on histology. However, it's worth noting that um, patients in our study had epithelial, all of them epithelial tumors. While we did not plan a subgroup analysis for histological types in our protocol, the sample size for, for such analysis would have been insufficient. However, further studies, further studies might shed light on this aspect. But in my personal opinion, it's possible that histological types with more aggressive growth patterns, such as serous tumors, which tend to adhere to the peritoneum and could potentially exhibit lower detection rates. And as we previously mentioned, this could be due to the extensive dissection required for the nexectomy, leaving little room for tracer injection and healthy peritoneum. And so the tracer dissemination and, and the leakage through the peritoneum, it's an important red flag in this case. So Nudia, two, uh, two more questions. Um, and uh, this first question, I am going to uh, challenge you a little bit. There, there are many that consider that lymph node evaluation is not truly necessary in early ovarian cancer because if you have a low-grade tumor, the likelihood of positive lymph nodes in those patients is extremely small. And similarly, if the patient has a high-grade tumor, then they will receive chemotherapy anyway. So why pursue this question? In other words, why put so much emphasis on finding a sentinel lymph node mapping when in low grades, you're not gonna find positive tumor uh, in, the, in the lymph node and in high grade, you're gonna give them chemotherapy anyway. Yeah, this is a really interesting question and somehow I was expecting you asking me this question and it's not uh, an easy one, but I'll do my best. The question regarding the necessity of lymph node evaluation in ovarian cancer is of significant importance as it has the potential to impact on the adjuvant management and offer unique value to the patient. And here I go. It's important to acknowledge that ovarian cancer is highly heterogeneous disease characterized by various um, variations in molecular biology, clinical characteristics, and prognosis. Moreover, the risk of lymph node metastasis differs among the different histological subtypes of ovarian cancer. For example, in relation to your point about low-grade tumors and the low likelihood of positive and um, positive nodes, it's important to emphasize that this likelihood depends on the histology of the ovarian cancer. For example, low-grade endometrioid and expansive mucinous ovarian cancer typically have a lymph node involvement rate lower than 5%. But instead, for low-grade serous ovarian cancer, often presents with a lymph node metastasis rate exceeding 10%. So, this later group with the higher rate of lymph node involvement can justify the use of systematic lymphadenectomy or at least lymph node assessment due to its potential impact on the choice of systematic therapy based on this decision. And in fact, this would also align with the approach of recommending lymph node assessment for other cancer, gynecological cancer with similar risk rates of metastasis to a lymph node. Regarding the point about patients with high-grade tumors receiving chemotherapy regardless, I believe this is partially correct. The blanket recommendation of six cycles of carboplatin and platitaxel as an alternative to staging lymphadenectomy remains unproven for these patients. Additionally, such an approach could expose a significant percentage of patients to unnecessary long-term toxicity. Instead, in cases of fully stage FIGO, um, um, stage one ovarian cancer, carboplatin monotherapy or less cycles of combined therapy may also be enough or um, considered. And instead, when 
staging of course due to, due to the lymph node metastasis, a combination of six cycles of carboplatin and platitaxel is recommended. Furthermore, combining treatment with bevacizumab is a viable option in the guidelines in patients with lymph node involvement and patients with a BRCA mutation might benefit um, also from olaparib for maintenance therapy. So the specific regimen determined by the final lymph node status and lately by the BRCA mutation status can be modified with the knowledge of lymph node status. Therefore, the role of lymph node metastasis extends beyond diagnosis and staging to and might have impact on a given treatment decision. So considering the potential to detect lymph node involvement with reduced morbidity and the opportunity to personalize adjuvant and maintenance treatments accordingly, the concept of sentinel lymph node mapping could have a role in ovarian cancer management as it has in other tumors. Finally, I believe that with the exponential growth in knowledge and experience gained from other tumor types, there is a compelling rationale for continuing research into the potential benefits of sentinel lymph node mapping. Research in this area is ongoing, of course, and while the outcomes are completely uncertain, at least it's worth exploring as it has the potential to improve patent patient cares and, and reduce morbidity. There's still a long way to go, but at the end, it's a line of um, investigation. Um, not all scientific questions always cover an extensive population group, as cancer have different incidences and it's heterogeneous, but however, at least we should try to answer them in order to provide a solution for the specific group of, of this question. Fantastic. So now, Nuria, last question. Uh, this is from Giuseppe Caruso, and he asks, where do we stand now? Uh, you know, obviously, sentinel lymph node mapping in ovarian cancer is not uh, widely performed, but what have we learned from, from this study and, and how do we move forward to guide future research? Yeah. So to sum up, we are currently at the point where standardizing the technique regarding the use of tracer and the timing of injection remains super necessary. Reviewing ongoing trials reveals variety of techniques indicating a lot, uh, still a lack of uniformity in sentinel lymph node mapping techniques. So the review underscores the significant variability despite efforts to organize the literature. However, being pragmatic from the published studies and ongoing trials, at least it is becoming clearer where the injection site should ideally be. Ideally, the injection should be performed in both ovarian ligaments, and the optimal scenario would involve performing the injection site without the mass present, thereby avoiding unnecessary injection if the frozen section turns out to be non-malignant, and using only ICG and the cyanine green alone. However, the current results of the systematic review do not align with what we might expect to be the, the, the best approach. And based on our results, considering the addition of a second tracer due to the characteristic of ICG might be advisable. Alternatively, to continue using only ICG, exploring another injection site such as is the cervix um, can be also very valuable and could be also worth it to investigate. Well, Nuria, thank you so, so much for this very, very informative uh, discussion. Uh, thank you, of course, for submitting the manuscript to, to our journal. And I'm really, really very excited, actually, to uh, see our journal club that will be coming up on this, uh, on this topic. And we hope, certainly, there will be many uh, who have listened to, to, the, to the podcast who will join as well. Uh, thank you again for your contribution and for your research. Yeah, thank you very much. For me, it has been a pleasure. And I'm looking forward to the Journal Club and be challenged by the questions of our, <laughs> of our journal readers. <laughs>
Well, thank, thank you. you.